welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a man who lives in his own little bubble. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello, I do. That is correct. So well done, sir. An accurate introduction. We are still keeping safe from coronavirus, right? We, we are. are not meeting in the studio. We are I am mostly staying in my own house except to go shopping. Are you pretty much on the same page? And dog walks. Yeah, those are the two. And dog walks. Mm-hmm. That's my ex. Yeah, dog walks and I go for the occasional run, maybe the occasional bike ride. That's still pretty much all I'm doing. Yeah, I'm, I'm about there. I'm pretty sure my waistline is reflecting that. And if and when we resume normal uh, soccer league games, I'm going to have some work to do. But I'm okay with that because it means I'm staying safe and staying responsible. So such is life. You know what? You won't be the only one. That's true. You won't be the only one. I was talking to my, my sister back home in the UK, right? Mm-hmm. And everybody was worried about their kids like not going to school for a long time. And she was of the opinion that it doesn't matter because they're all not learning. <laughs> so when they take the exams, <laughs> no one will be behind anyone, right? They'll all be thick. None of them will have learned anything. They'll all be thick. She actually said that, didn't she? <laughs> she did. Yeah. I figured. I figured that was the case. I like that logic, though. I like that. Yeah, right. No one's falling behind. Yeah. <laughs> we all agree no one's learning anything. We're just going to plug them into TV for a while, and uh, we're going to take a year off. That's how it's going to be. I'm sure that's what parents would love to hear me say about them having to stay at home and work and also raise their children, is that they get a year <laughs> off. It must just be fun and uh, carefree. The big winner in my sister's house turned out to be Disney+. Plus. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think streaming services, while trying to be sympathetic and like lowering their costs and doing certain promotions, I think definitely have been rubbing their hands together uh, they for sure a have. months now. They sure have. Um, uh, one final plug for, well, not final, but one more plug for MLS Assist, mm-hmm. um, a spin-off podcast hosted by Joe and Jordan. If you've been watching the MLS's back tournament and you want daily reviews of all the action, go and subscribe to MLS Assist. It's a whole separate podcast um, with a whole separate vibe. That's right. But the same, the same total soccer showy goodness. How about that? Well said. Say, yeah, <laughs> same goodness. Uh, they are not in the bubble, but they're recording about people who are in their own bubble as MLS's bat kicks off. <laughs> that was where that intro was eventually supposed to go. I just didn't, <laughs> I didn't do a great job linking it. I it's think, hard to, I it it's out. hard to pierce the bubble. It's hard to pierce the bubble. <laughs> so today's show mm-hmm. is seven listener questions. And I don't know if you notice this, Taylor, it's deliberately a lot of like weird, interesting questions. Yeah. I've deliberately done it that way. Um, the first question comes from Tyler Thornburg. Mm-hmm. It's probably the most newsy one. Tyler asks, what is going on at Wigan Athletic? <laughs> Tyler says he's not sure what to believe. It seems like the club doesn't have the usual massive amounts of debt that they can't find a buyer for. I've read a couple of conspiracy theories that the owners might have made bets to get themselves relegated um, and get points deducted. Any clarity would help. Mm-hmm. So here's the really brief version for people who don't know what's going on at Wigan Athletic, which, by the way, is the current home of US men's national team left back Anthony Robinson, right? Anthony Robinson. Very much temporarily, yes. Temporarily, but that's his current employer, right? Um, So Wigan Athletic um, was sold a couple years ago by Dave Whelan, who was the longtime owner, um, then recently sold again to another company that seems to have very close ties to the first company. And then, as Tyler says, despite only having £9 million of debt, which is almost nothing for a football team, for an EFL championship football team, They were mysteriously placed into administration on July 1st. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there were rumors and there was even a recorded conversation where the EFL uh, chairman, Rick Parry, suggested that there'd been a weird bet placed on Wigan being relegated. Mm -hmm. 
So there does seem to be a bit of a conspiracy theory where it seems like the owners may have deliberately placed Wigan into administration in order to make sure they get relegated to fulfill the terms of a bet. Yes. So there's that conspiracy theory, which is possible, given the strangeness of the situation. There's another one that I think is equally, if not more likely, which still involves gambling. Okay, so what's that one? I haven't heard that one. That one would be that I believe the uh, the original person, uh, Dr. Stanley Choi, who took over uh, from Dave Whelan, was himself, I believe, involved in gambling, a professional poker player. At least he played it uh, a lot. And there was some speculation that potentially he lost the club in a gambling situation. And oh. the new owners were basically kind of got this team now and they've got to figure out what to do with it. And what they don't want to do with it is put a bunch of money into it. So here we are. So he was at a poker table and like had pushed his watch in or he pushed his car keys in and then he just pushed a Wigan Athletic badge into the middle of the table? Yeah, it's uh, the Casino Royale scene where the guy throws his keys into the pot to, to make up the difference, except this oh. time it's an entire football club and all of the supporters who love them and enjoy them. <laughs> so let's untangle this a bit more for listeners. Sure. Why, for example, would going into administration make sure that a team gets relegated? Because you get a points deduction. Uh, it's sure a do. mandatory 12 points deduction applied to the season in which you go into administration, which would mean that Wigan, who are currently safe from relegation, would then drop into that relegation zone because of the 12 points. Yep, they are eight points clear of relegation right now, with still a few games to go, right? So they could expand that number. They need to get that number above 12, basically, because the 12 point deduction would pull them down into the relegation zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and here's the issue, is that then you get the quote of, uh, there's no guarantee that Wigan will actually be able to play their remaining fixtures because of financial constraints and considerations. So even there that, yeah, exactly, even there that fuels the theory that maybe this is an intentional action uh, to get them relegated. If suddenly it seems like they're going to survive, it almost has a like comedy feel of, we'll buy a club, it's just so easy to run them in the ground, it happens all the time, and then this one just happens to be successful, so you have to find new ways to make sure that they end up getting relegated. It would be funny if it weren't uh, also tragically sad. It really is tragic. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're talking quite openly about the conspiracy theories Mm -hmm. here. The reporting that I've read, mostly coming out of the UK, in fact, entirely coming out of the UK, is being very careful about what it's saying. Um, My guess is that because in the UK, there are a lot of libel laws where you basically can't say this person is deliberately going into administration to tank the club to make sure they get relegated Mm -hmm. because of some weird gambling situation. But I think reading between the lines, it's there. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it's partially that. It's partially concern over libel laws and getting sued. But like uh, Adam Crafton, Simon Hughes wrote a great piece for The, Art- uh, for the Athletic uh, discussing the sort of situation and breaking it down as best they could. And as an example as to why we also kind of don't know a lot of details, uh, Mr. Ao Young is how I'm going to pronounce it. Uh, he is the current like head of Wigan, basically. No one, it seems, has really seen him. Uh, when he announced they're going to yes. administration, it was via phone call. Uh, he has not been to Wigan. Uh, so I think there's also an idea like they could only find two news stories about him on the Internet. So there's also this feeling that no one really knows who's in charge or what exactly has happened or who will be accountable for things or if anybody will be. So I think with so many things left unexplained, there are being gaps being filled, except that normally those gaps seem illogical and a bit extreme. This sort of feels like those gaps make sense when you fill them in with some sort of gambling connection or some, something nefarious happening financially. And then the other big thing is that there are supposed to be um, safeguards in place mm-hmm. to stop this kind of thing happening, right? And so right. there is some responsibility here 
um, has to be borne by the EFL for for letting this weird second sale take place. That's the key one, right? Because when uh, Dave Whelan initially sells in 2018, it's to the International Entertainment Corporation, which sounds like a company in a Michael Bay movie, first of all, the International <laughs> Entertainment Corporation, uh, so generically named. Uh, but that one uh, is approved, and it is the case that that's a company that's, I believe, traded on the Hong, Hong Kong Stock Exchange. There's an idea that they do have money. They can finance this team. They can finance the sale. I believe they do initially put money into to the club they i think like resurface the field and put some money into the, the academies so it seems like it's sort of working out it's that second sale that suddenly happens out of nowhere uh basically it's what july 1st uh, they enter they enter uh administration july 1st it's june 4th is when that announcement happens and the idea that then they have to go into administration because of the unknown or like unexpected consequences of a global pandemic when you bought them in June, like you yeah. sort of knew what was happening there. There's no way you can claim you didn't see it coming. Oh, and before we started recording, you had texted me and said, um, should we get into what administration is? Because yeah. some mm-hmm. people might not know what it is. We mm-hmm. never fully resolved that. Do, do you think we need to get into expanding administration? Yeah, I think I think just because like it is sort of strange to hear like there's another person who now is involved who speaks for the club but also doesn't speak for the club. It might be worth going into yeah, what it exactly means. Okay, so my really brief understanding of administration is it's essentially when a company, in this case a football club, says, uh, we've got so much debt, we can't handle it. Mm-hmm. Uh, please come in and deal with it, right? And an yep. administra- administrator will come in. In this case, it's what Gerald Klasner um, comes in. And essentially, their job is to figure out your debts and you'll end up with the people that you owe money to negotiating with them to essentially pay less than you owe. But then the administrator also has control. Like it won't let you spend any more money. It essentially puts your house in order if you've been spending wildly, um, maybe like Michael Scott and, and all the all the stuff he'd been buying on his credit cards. Yep. <laughs> that, that black scary bar of things that no one could possibly need. Yes. Exactly. But, but then the punishment from the football um, uh, league is that you get docked points because mm-hmm. you can't irresponsibly go into administration. They want teams to avoid doing that. Yeah. It, the, again, the analogy works really well. You can't just scream, I declare bankruptcy, and then you're allowed to operate <laughs> as, as though nothing happened. There yes. will be consequences in this case. It's a 12-point deduction. But to the point you made earlier, the thing that makes this especially strange, everything about it is especially strange, but – it's that normally when this happens, it is years of financial mismanagement. There are debts that cannot be consolidated. The club has leveraged its stadium. They've leveraged their training fields. They've done everything they can. They've slashed staff. They've uh, sold all of their players. They're only playing academy players. Really, none of that has happened with Wigan. Yeah, which is they own their stadium, point, right? Exactly. They own their training ground. Yeah, and they, they have, haven't sold any players yet. And they have and assets that they could, right? Like Anthony Robinson, yeah. you mentioned. They have young players who they could sell on for money to finance that debt. So it's almost as if they didn't need to go into administration, Mm -hmm. but someone wanted them to for some strange reason. And to not be coy about it, we think it's because they wanted the 12-point deduction to make sure they get relegated. Imagine being a fan of this team. As I understand it, there was a fan who kind of saw what was happening and contacted Mm -hmm. the English Football League and said, look at this, something weird is going on. But the English Football League did not do anything about it. Yeah. And and I think it could well be that, that they're intentionally uh, going into administration so that they get that that deduction. I think it could also be the case that they were lost in a gambling, like in a bout of gambling, basically. And now it's been this slow thing of they're trying to like cut down on expenditures. Then suddenly the people who take over are like, yeah, we don't want this thing. We like we thought it was going to be worth $20 million or whatever you paid for it. Uh, so no, thank you. And then, of course, you're going to stop putting money in and try to get out of it as quickly as you can. Either way, it is not as though Wigan were 
so poorly run for so long that this was an inevitability. It's not even that somebody came in and spent a bunch of money and then it all went south. It just yeah. seems like nobody did much except for the people who were in charge who kept the club running as they have been. And then things were suddenly the rug was pulled out, basically. So all we can do is cross our fingers. Mm-hmm. Um, they won yesterday, right? They won 1-0 on Wednesday. Just hope that they are allowed to keep continue playing games and hope that they get 12 or 13 points clear um, of relegation and can survive even the administration penalty de- mm-hmm. points deduction. But as soon That's as we the, hear... the only thing I can think to do is cross my fingers, right? Yeah. As soon as we hear that eight of the players tested positive for coronavirus, even though like none of them have been tested, that's when we know something is extra fishy. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. Yeah. Ready for the next question? Yeah, I think so. Robbie Van Steenberg wants to know what does it mean when someone says a player is playing with his back to goal. I was just watching the Arsenal game. This this is from a week or two ago, so I'm not sure which Arsenal game. But I was just watching the Arsenal game, says Robbie, and a commentator said that Lacazette is more comfortable playing with his back to goal than Obama Yang is. What does that mean? I'll bet, Tyler, this is a thing that we've just said casually as well without mm-hmm. explaining what it is. That's why I love getting questions like this from Robbie where it's an honest thing of, I keep hearing this, I don't know what it means. So what does it mean to play with your back to goal? I will say what it means to me because to your point... It's also the case that I hadn't really thought more deeply about it than like, yeah, I'm assuming that's what it means. So that's how I'm using it. So I could well be wrong. But my understanding when I say it is that it's a forward who is not trying to make runs in behind. They're not playing as a false nine and dropping into space. They're basically kind of holding holding up the ball. They're an outlet there and they can then combine with people around them to then facilitate attacks. But they're not necessarily counting on their speed or the versatility of their runs. They're counting on their ability to kind of like bring the ball down, hold it up, wait for people to be around them and then have the attack move forward yeah i mean that's that's it right that's the mm-hmm. major part of it is when you think of a striker you think of them facing the goal as the team goes forward but some strikers i mean they can do both right but some strikers will literally you turn around and your back is facing mm-hmm. the goal the defender is in your back and you're receiving the ball and then laying it off to teammates and basically facilitating um play for everybody else as opposed to trying to get in behind the defense to score yourself I think it's basically that simple, right? Right. And then the reason why that becomes an issue is because if you are trying to be a free-flowing, highly attacking, counter-attacking team or something like that, a back-to-goal striker can help you. But if you are trying to attack with a swiftness and that player is trying to slow the ball down and hold it up, it doesn't really vibe that well. Well, I mean, you should only be doing it if it's part of the team plan, exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would say most strikers will only be doing it if it's part of the part of the team plan, because mm-hmm. most strikers, including Lacazette, would rather be through on goal one on one with a keeper, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it just seems that Lacazette is more willing to put his back to goal and sort of do more of the grunt work than someone like Obama Yang is, right? Mm-hmm. And to get into a really Arsenal thing, I would argue this is why, even though. You think Obama Yang's better as a central striker. You could think in your head that Obama Yang is better as a central striker. It's actually better for him to be on the left wing because then he never has to play with his back to goal. He can always be facing goal, but just cutting in from the left. And Lacazette is doing all the back to goal work for him. Yeah. Right. So it actually, weirdly, you get more chance to run at goal from the left wing than you do at center forward the way that Arteta is playing this system. Yeah. It's almost like you want to put people in their natural positions to have them thrive. And if it doesn't work, then you sell them on. That seems yeah. to be like a fairly good operational policy. I think Obama Yang should stay. I think he's suited to what's going on at Arsenal right now. I think it makes a lot of sense, especially given the pandemic and the resulting, we expect, slowdown in the transfer market. I think a lot of people yeah. that maybe otherwise would have moved or would have been more heavily linked with moves probably don't move or uh, much more seriously consider staying. 
All right. So, Robbie, I hope we answered your question. Let's get to today's first sponsor, Taylor. Mm-hmm. It's Artifact. It Artifact, Artifact has sponsored every show this week so far. Um, Artifact is co-founded by our friend George Qureshi. Artifact is personal podcasts with the people in your life. And Taylor, I believe our la- on our last episode, the name finally made sense to you. It did. It did. Because essentially, you're using it to preserve a memory or to tell a story about a specific person or event or time period or what have you. And in effect, you're preserving it for future generations for posterity. That's basically what an artifact is. And so I recently made an artifact with my wife where we talked about my cancer diagnosis um, and treatment, which um I think you would agree. I haven't had trouble talking about it, right? I'm quite happy to talk about it, but I didn't have one um, perfectly contained 23-minute thing of here's the story. (laughs) So doing doing an artifact where essentially George set it up for us, um, he set up the call, told us, uh, you know, where to be, what to do, asked us some like good questions, uh, recorded the audio, then he edited it all together. There's some nice music in there. It's got a nice feel to it. Felt very NPR-ish. George kind of has an NPR voice as well. He does. If you think about it that way. Um, and now I finally have this 23-minute thing that really represents um, what happened and how we dealt with it. And if anyone was really interested to hear the whole story, genuinely, this is where I would send them. I would mm-hmm. say, listen to this. And essentially, you can do that for anything that has happened in your life doesn't have to be something negative like cancer right it can be a a happy thing that has happened and i hope it is yeah i I think that is definitely the case but sticking with yours specifically for a moment like i think there is uh at times especially in american culture like a hesitation to talk openly and honestly about like emotional things that are happening and especially difficult emotional things that are happening and i and i do think that there's a chance that some people will listen to that and maybe feel motivated to deal with their own health issues whatever they might be and i think that's only a good thing so for that reason as well i'm very appreciative that you all took the time to do that and that george uh, made it possible well here's a short clip um this is my, my wife talking about my colon I hadn't thought about Daryl's colon that much in my life. And then we're deciding, should we just get rid of the whole thing? I will concur with her. I don't think I ever really thought about your colon, Daryl, until uh, (laughs) things happened the way they did. Me neither. And I (laughs) honestly, I learned that the colon and the large intestine are the same thing. I thought they were two separate things. Dude, I spent longer than I would like to admit Googling that, trying to figure out like, but it disappeared. This image said the colon is here. But then when I clicked on it, it was just intestines. Uh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I learned they things. Shouldn't, we always say things can be two things, but they should just be named one thing when it's yeah. a medical thing. Yeah. Um, if you if you want to hear the full 23-minute story, um, go to heyartifact.com slash Daryl, uh, D-A-R-Y-L. Link will be in the show notes. If you want to make your own artifact, or if you have someone in your life who you would like to make an artifact for, you could set it up for someone else, go to heyartifact.com. Use the code TSS, TSS. You'll get $40 off your first artifact with the code T-S-S. That's heyartifact.com, code TSS, for $40 off your first artifact. Thank you very much to Artifact for sponsoring this episode and uh, for preserving uh, that story. I'm also thankful that maybe, just maybe, with that custom URL to hear the story, that people will maybe finally start spelling your name more consistently correctly. (laughs) I doubt it. I I doubt doubt it, too. All right, next question comes from Tanner Hildman. Why don't leagues retroactively change the results of a game when they admit that there was a mistake? like the Hawkeye system malfunction. So this is the um, Sheffield United 
goal where the Aston Villa keeper and mm-hmm. uh, Nealon dragged it over the line, but Hawkeye didn't catch it, right? This is when uh, Project Restart started, what I think 100 years ago was when that happened. <laughs> um, so, yeah, why don't the Premier League just go back and say, well, actually, that crossed the line, so that game is now 1-0 to Sheffield United? I think it would be a Pandora's box that they'd be yeah. opening mm-hmm. right there, right? If every game afterwards could be re-examined and then the score could retroactively be adjusted then nothing would ever be final, right? Um, And I would say as well, if you're Aston Villa, you could correctly argue, well, because it wasn't given at the time, we played the rest of the game as if it was nil-nil. If we'd been one-nil down, Mm -hmm. we would have played differently and we would have brought Indiana Veselev on to equalize. Yeah, it's the same thing (laughs) as like like pondering like what happened. I miss that. To some extent to me, it's the same thing as like if you miss a shot and it would have been a goal and your team still wins like two-nil. Like could you make the argument that missing that chance – if you had scored it, maybe you end up losing 2-1. Like, it's the butterfly effect, sliding, sliding yeah. doors sort of situation that you can't just retroactively say, never mind, that should have been a goal. But I do know where this is coming from, because in that game at halftime, when they were like, yeah, that was a mistake, it should have been given, it did seem like they should have come out and been like, all right, yeah, sorry, you're 1-0 down now. Deal with it. And that wasn't necessarily what happened. It wasn't what happened at all. But I understand where that's coming from, because it does feel like if there's such a clear error and there is a way to correct that error and that doesn't happen, it feels like something has gone awry. Yeah, but once players restarted yep. and there's like uh, any reasonable amount of time has passed, it's too late to go yeah. back and change things, right? Because you've played under the new the new terms. Yeah, absolutely. The only, the only type of, the only thing similar to this that can happen is um, losing a game via forfeit, right? So, so you could win a game 2-0, but then it turns out that one of the players you fielded mm-hmm was an imposter, like wasn't even registered to play in the league. I mean, this could happen at any level, right? Professional level or amateur World level. qualifying would be one. Yeah. yeah, you can then be, that game can be recorded usually as a 3-0 loss forfeit yep. because you broke the rules in fielding an ineligible, ineligible player. Mm-hmm. That can happen, but they can't be like, well, we're just going to remove every action that this player took. And he had an assist on this one goal, so now you only win 1-0 because he had an assist on the first goal, right? It's too complicated to unthread it because, as Jeff Goldblum says, once the butterfly flaps its wings, then who knows what happens after that, right? <laughs> Is so, that what he says? I think he said, like, a butterfly <laughs> flaps its wings and, like, on the other side of the world it causes... Mm-hmm. Like a tsunami or something like that, yeah. Tidal waves in Japan or something, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and like that's obviously a very small to large scale, um, uh, what, cause and effect. But in Mm -hmm. a a small way, you can't unravel the cause and effect of what happens in a soccer game by saying, oh, that happened, so we make it 1-0 because everything else happened as well. So we can't go back and change results, but we can go back and all admit that uh, Jeff Goldblum made math sexy. Is that fair to say? (laughs) Why not? Why not? (laughs) <laughs> uh, anything else on Hawkeye system malfunctions and retroactive changes? No, except that it's it's just impossible, right? If you don't yep. get it right in the moment, you I mean you could maybe like argue for replaying the entire game, but I yep. don't know if Sheffield United and Aston like even Aston Villa might Aston Villa definitely wouldn't want to lose one 0 right? But mm. they also they got the draw. Would they want to roll the dice and try and get a win? I don't know, because Sheffield United's a good team and Villa might lose to them if they play again. Yeah, and either way, someone's going to feel hard done because if you did come out at halftime and say that should have been given, we're giving it now, then Villa are going to file a protest because, well, we just spent all of halftime, yeah. well, as, you, as you said earlier, like planning for it to be nil-nil, and now we're down one-nil. That changes everything, so now it's unfair to us. And then if you address that by replaying the match, well, it shouldn't have been replayed in the first place. And you can go down that rabbit hole as far as you want, but you yep. end up in a rabbit hole scribbling stuff when like connecting lines with uh with red tape 
So I'm in favor of keeping Pandora's box closed. Yeah. <laughs> that's fair that's fair uh next question daryl yeah. uh, i'm gonna ask two in a row because this one feels like one that you will have some thoughts on from zach lippert was emil heskey good uh let's get to the good part first or second let's focus first on for people who are new to soccer or don't remember who is emil heskey and why is this question being asked do you think so Emil Heskey was a striker in the 2000s who first played for Leicester, had a big move to Liverpool, um, later played for Villa and Wigan. And then I think he ended up playing in Australia for Newcastle Jets. Yep. Um, he was also an England striker for a long, long, long time. But he was also the butt of a lot of jokes. Uh, and the joke being that he wasn't a very effective striker, right? Mm-hmm. Um I would argue that, yes, Emil Heskey actually was good. He was very, very good, but not in the way people wanted him to be because too many people don't understand soccer and are too quick to just decide that it's more fun to make jokes about people. With that in mind, Daryl, how much do you think the way we've talked about soccer, or maybe specifically people in England have talked about soccer, has evolved? Because... I, I don't think of Jonathan Wilson and Michael Cox like being as prevalent, if at all, around at that point. And I do wonder if you have people who sort of are able to explain why he's useful and why he's effective. Yep. Does that make him more appreciated in the moment? Emil Heskey now would be much, much, much more appreciated. Yeah. I think you'd, you'd have like um, Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher would be highlighting what he's doing that makes him a really useful and effective player. You would have, yeah, Michael Cox article and a Michael Cox podcast on Zonal Marking, the athletic podcast, which I would encourage people hmm. to listen to. You would have uh, Sam Tai pointing out um, why Emil Heskey um, is useful. But at the time... All you had was his goal-scoring record, the occasional highlight of him not scoring, and the fact that essentially he was a centre-forward who didn't score that many goals, and the other stuff he did was not appreciated. Right, because the famous one would be, what, when y'all beat Germany 5-1 and the chant was like, even Heskey scored? Yes, exactly. But here's why Heskey was good. Mm -hmm. Emil Heskey was a great strike partner for everybody he played alongside, like Rooney for England, um, Owen for for Liverpool. He was always really good at essentially being the the target guy who would flick it on for you or the guy who would uh, take an opposition, take a marker away to open up space for you. He was really good at dragging players out of position so someone else can exploit the space. He would essentially also take a pummeling, um, you know, get into physical um, contests with players and, you know, and draw them away so that, for example, Michael Owen can slip in and score. So Emil Heskey was just a really good self-sacrificing kind of striker um, but wasn't a great finisher. So people just thought of him as just a not very good striker. You know what is I mean? It, is it sort of like, we've had this conversation before. I have some friends who think like Firmino is not that good, that he doesn't score enough goals. He doesn't do yes. enough for Liverpool. And it feels sort of the same of like, yeah, if your metric is, does he score a goal every game? No, you're not going to think he's the best striker. But if you remove that and then look at everything else he does, you'll see why he is valued and why he is valuable. Yeah, it's not identical because what Firmino does, it's a lot, when you watch it and you see it, it's a lot kind of more graceful and classier, right? And essentially because Liverpool play a much more controlled and graceful and classy style of soccer right now than than they did um, under, say, Rafa Benitez or Gerard Houllier. uh, you know, it was a bit more direct, basically, uh, in in the olden days. It wasn't quite like how Klopp has them has them playing. So, it's, yeah, it's a similar role in a different style, if that makes sense. The the other thing about Emil Heskey is he burst onto the scene as I think like a seventeen or eighteen year old striker for Leicester, and he had that thing that teenage strikers have, where you just seem to have this extra bit of 
pep in your step and you're a bit more explosive. So people really thought of him as this like explosive striker who was always going to be like getting in behind and banging in goals. But he essentially, this happens to all strikers as well. As you play more and more and go to a bigger team, your game gets more rounded and you become more about accommodating other players around you. And I think as he became more unselfish and a more rounded player, he also became less obviously um, useful to the untrained eye. Mm -hmm. With that in mind, I forgot there was another player that I thought of as being, I think, regrettably likely to go the route of Emil Heskey of becomes more and more punchline, becomes less and less like respected for what he does, which is actually being a very, very good soccer player and a very effect- effective one at that. And it's Josie Altador. Josie Altador to me feels yeah. like a person who, because of injuries, because of what was happened with Cuba, because of maybe Sunderland as well, you roll those together and then he becomes almost more of a punchline and like used as an example of, of us not having a good goal scoring option. And when in reality, if you look at all the things he does do and, and how he complements those around him and still does score goals, but has the technical ability to like lead a line when no one else is helping him, I think it's easy to overlook him the way it's easy to sometimes overlook Emil Heskey. And I honestly think there might be an element of racism to the underrating of yeah. both players. I really, I really do think that. I watched the uh, the athletic video about Emil Heskey, uh, where they were basically the entire tone of it was like, "How dare you even ask if he's good?" But <laughs> I did notice they went out of their way to avoid using like. Even when they were talking about how strong he was, they didn't say powerful. They didn't say, you know, built like an ox. Like they, they, and, it, and it seems like they deliberately were not doing that because of how often that is how he's discussed. He was actually, I've heard him talk about this. Um, his nickname, apparently, when he came through the ranks at Leicester. I was just preparing myself right now. Okay. Bruno. Do you know who Frank Bruno is? No. So, yeah, I guess he wasn't globally famous, but he was the best British boxer in the sort of early 90s I want to say late 90s early 90s but he was also like a big media personality right mm-hmm. Frank Bruno um, and because Emil Heskey is of a similar build Bruno was his nickname and I think it was one of those things that everybody thought was harmless mm-hmm. Emil Heskey did not like it and I, I think I've heard him talk about how you know he was young so he just kind of let it go but when he moved to Liverpool he was like no more Bruno stop calling me Bruno yeah um, so it, it is just one of those things where you've had to he's had to deal with that type of stuff from very early on in his career yeah. So uh, basically, TSS pro Emil Heskey, pro him being a good player, we'll have him on our team anytime. I mean, yeah, he'd, do, he'd still do very, very well in our division. All right. Sign him up. Let's get him in there. <laughs> Let's get some goals. We try if, that he's willing to go, if he's willing to go play in Australia, we might be able to get him to come and play in the US, right? <laughs> I'm guessing I mean, they, they paid a little bit better than we would be able to. How, how He's probably like 43, 44. He would still absolutely destroy in our league, right? Oh, yeah. Far away. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Certainly. I mean, what well, this is going to be a deep cut reference for like eight people, but like, I mean, Kwaku played until he was, I believe, 98 years old, uh, <laughs> even though I think he's, he's nowhere close to that. But yes, was still far and away the best player that I would play against on a routine basis. So yes, he, I think Emil Heskey would be just fine. He had to keep playing until I managed to tackle him. That was, that's <laughs> the reason that was Kwaku played for so long. That was, that was when it was all over for him? Yeah. <laughs> well, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. Oh, okay. Um, all right. Before we move mm-hmm. on, Taylor, today's show is sponsored by... Hims, mm-hmm. Hims hair. Um, you may know, Tyler, that 66% of men start to lose their hair by the age of 35. That's I roughly two thirds of men. Um, don't be ashamed about it. Exactly. Not least because it's happening to the majority of people. Mm-hmm. But if you want to do something about it, you can do something about it. And that's where Hims comes in. 
Right. And I think for the longest time, like the hair loss industry, like preyed upon the vulnerability of like, I don't want anyone to know I'm going to wear a hat. I'm going to go to the gas station. I'm going to go buy some nefarious substance online and hope that it works out. And then you end up putting plutonium on your head. Don't do that. Don't put plutonium on your head. Go to a doctor and get useful science. Yeah. And it will get you on a lot of different lists that you don't want to be (laughs) on. Instead, you can uh, utilize actual medicine and actual science to actually deal with hair loss. And science that can't actually be used to make a nuclear weapon. That too. That too. <laughs> uh, 4hims.com connects you with uh, licensed medical professionals. Uh, it saves you hours and effort because you don't have to go anywhere. It's all from the comfort of your home. So once you talk to the medical professional, if they decide that uh, the treatment is right for you, they'll prescribe you the medication to treat hair loss, and it'll be shipped directly to your door. Hims also has a new offer, their best offer yet, they tell me. Um, if you're not happy with the results after 90 days, Hims will give you a full refund. Right now, you can get the first visit absolutely free if you go to 4hims.com slash Total Soccer. That's lucky that's the same name as our show. That's right? 4 slash Total Soccer. Oh, look how it's worked out, Taylor. You get mm-hmm. to read the disclaimer. I'm not even going to try to go fast with this one because it looks more complicated than the one before. Full refund of price paid available for the first 90 days supply. Refund requests must be made between 90 and 180 days after product shipment delivered. Prescription products require an online consultation with a medical professional who will determine if prescription is appropriate. Restrictions apply. See website for full details and safety information. Important safety information at that. Nicely done. One more time. That's 4hims.com slash totalsucker. All right, Daryl, let's talk more questions, right? Not answer. Let's talk them. Uh, let's talk it. Let's talk them up. Um, <laughs> right. Next question comes from Kai Weitinger. Oh, I've been waiting for this one. Kai Weitinger wants to know, assuming there are no chemistry issues, what is the worst team that Messi and Ronaldo could team up on and win the European Champions League? All right. The UEFA Champions League, excuse me. I know what you meant. Um, I took this from a realistic standpoint while removing the chemistry issues, uh, which is to say I think it's very difficult to win the Champions League. We know that. It does require a talented squad. You can't just win it with two players. You do need a manager who is capable of figuring things out and adjusting accordingly. So for me, the answer is PSG. PSG, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how would this go? They would... Play up front with Neymar? I guess so. They, they would go with the unprecedented 2-2-6 uh, uh, formation, I think. Um, yeah, I think you would probably have to put some people on the bench or sell some people on. But I think that would be the one where you could kind of let them do what they want to do and then construct the team around them. They have the money to do that. Um, and I think there would be a willingness to do that as well. I think you might be right here. I mean, I, I think that adding Neymar and Messi to PSG mm-hmm. would make them Champions League contenders. Yeah. But I'm not sure how much of an upgrade it is on PSG. Like, you're going to lose either Neymar or Mbappe, right? Unless you're going with some sort of crazy front four. I, I like crazy front four. I'm down with a 4-2-4. Let's bring it back, Daryl. 4-2-4. So yep. I'm, I'm really am trying to work. I'm not trying to be difficult. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to work this out. Maybe we're looking at, like, Ronaldo as a striker and Messi as a 10 underneath yep. him. And... Mbappe um, with Mbappe Ronaldo. on the right and Neymar yeah. on the left? Uh, you could do that. You could do Ronaldo and Mbappe as your like front two with Neymar as like a nominal winger who doesn't do anything defensively and someone a bit more defensive on the other side with, yeah, Messi underneath. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah, but maybe, okay. maybe a 4-2-1-3 is probably the best way. I think you might have figured it out there. All right. So I think that is a Champions League viable winning mm-hmm. viable team but is it the worst team that we could put them on to make them better 
I, I feel like you might have an answer. I mean, I would argue... Actually, I, I want to back up and agree with you that we can't just put them on a team mm-hmm. that's like pretty good and expect things to suddenly go stratospheric, right? Like if we put Messi and Ronaldo on Everton, the current Everton team, you're still not winning the Champions League with a midfield of Gilfie Sigurdsson and Andre Gomez, no. right? No, you're it's, not. It's still not happening. If you put them on... Atletico Madrid, it's not realistic to expect them to do the defensive discipline type mm-hmm. thing that Diego Simeone asks. If you put them on RB Leipzig, it's not realistic to expect them to play the Julian Nagelsmann pressing game, right? So there's certain situations where this doesn't work. Can I, I'm going to jump in there to say that you explained it better than I, that like that's where I went with PSG, is that most other teams, it would require sort of a, a complete reconfiguration or figuring out a lot of new parts. And PSG seemed the one that are most likely to be like, yeah, sure. We've already done it four times. Let's just do it again. <laughs> it would be the most PSG thing, right? It would be oh, PSG yeah. to the extreme. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would argue Borussia Dortmund are a slightly worse team than PSG. But adding Leo Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo makes them genuine Champions League contenders in a way that they kind of aren't right now. Yeah, I think that's probably true. It probably also helps them challenge for the Bundesliga in a way that they certainly couldn't this season. That- that would also be helpful, right? Because this is, it's, it's a similar but different argument that adding Ronaldo and Messi to PSG is a very PSG thing, right? And doing it to the extreme. I would say adding Ronaldo and Messi to Borussia Dortmund is adding the thing that they're, uh, sort of ethos wise and just financially, I think, not capable of adding, which is to get some major, major big name stars that they have to pay a lot of money for. So they're usually getting like up and comers like Erling Haaland and Jaden Sancho. To actually add players who are not in their prime, right? It's worth remembering that Messi and Ronaldo are both touching mid-30s here. Um, maybe it does add like um, an experienced, two experienced winners to Borussia Dortmund, two old veterans, two old pros, two wily old sea dogs with still lots of talent left in their legs that would take Borussia Dortmund from perennial, exciting, almost team to actual Bundesliga and Champions League contenders. And I would agree. Does that mean that once again we're sticking with a four, a four two one three almost? I mean, no. I would just displace probably Erling Haaland, for example, uh, for Cristiano Ronaldo. I still think that's an upgrade with Erling Haaland coming off the bench. And maybe we keep we just switch Sancho to the left and add Leo Messi as the right sided attacking midfielder. All right. Yeah. All right. I mean, Erling Haaland would like a word with you. He's not very happy. He's outside he, waiting for you in his he, gigantic form. He can keep on chatting. I'll maybe bring him on for the last 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, how about, all right, I, I want to get, um, I want to see sure. how low we can go, basically. If we accept that Borussia Dortmund are a better team than the current Spurs and Arsenal teams, what if we added Ronaldo and Messi to Tottenham? So the front three becomes Harry Kane, Cristiano Ronaldo, and Leo Messi. Is that a Champions League contender? Yes, and it's probably the best shout. Um, <laughs> they obviously they're not going to drop that money, but that aside, like T- Tottenham, as we saw, are a couple injuries away from having one attacker <laughs> in the form of Lucas Mora. So yeah. I think it, it gives them depth, but also I think Jose Mourinho would. Ah, I forgot Jose's there. That does kind of hurt things a little bit. I don't know. I don't know if he's going to get the best out of, of Lionel Messi, but maybe. But maybe he would. But I think he would be willing to sort of adjust his approach i think other coaches managing tottenham would be more willing to adjust their approach to to accommodate those two and then yeah i think that's probably not to say that tottenham are bad again just reiterating it's really hard to win the champions league you've got to have a lot of talent what about arsenal if we added ronaldo and messi to the current arsenal team 
I think we should put make Ronaldo a center back, and I don't see how things could be worse. <laughs> um, yeah, I, th- I think t- to answer seriously, yes, I would I would say kind of the same thing as as Tottenham that I think Mikel Arteta is still figuring it out, figuring out who his best eleven is, how exactly he wants them to play, and I think you could see him sort of changing it up just a little bit. And we know he comes from the Pep system. Pep obviously was able to get a decent amount, uh, a decent return out of Lionel Messi. I think you add Ronaldo in there too; he could figure that one out. And why not? We're good to go. So it's also big upgrades in each position, right? We're switching, say, Pepe for Messi. So big, big upgrade. And we'd be switching Lacazette slash Enketia for Cristiano Ronaldo. I, yeah, that's an upgrade. I think that could work. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. Okay. All right. I'm with you. I like uh, who is lower on the table, Tottenham right now? I was about to ask the same thing so that we didn't have to say who we thought was worse, Tottenham or Arsenal. <laughs> um, I want to say Spurs are lower than Arsenal. I right believe now. I believe you're correct. So yes, let's say Tottenham would be the team. All right. So Spurs are the worst team that we could add um, Ronaldo and Messi to to win the Champions League. Good answer, Un- Daryl. Unless Taylor Rockwell. Mm-hmm. You think it could be Ajax? I thought about that. I think it could be because that, like Messi coming through Barcelona's system in their academy, has a lot of familiarity with the Ajax style of play. Ronaldo is the one that threw me off about that one. Would they, like, can Ajax handle kind of being built around a player who is a little bit outside of the system, can play within it, but would require a little bit of an adjustment? And would the fans accept that one? This is where I get kind of real with it when obviously this is sort of an absurd question. <laughs> well, I'm certain what- a good way. Don't get me wrong, Kai. Here's how I ultimately came down on this is you would essentially be upgrading Tadic, who plays as like a weird attacking midfielder striker mm. for Ajax with Ronaldo. And you'll be upgrading maybe either Hakim Ziyech or David Neres with Messi as like an attacking winger. Or maybe you'd be upgrading uh, Van der Beek with Messi as the central attacking midfielder. But it doesn't bring back what they were missing the last year, which is Frankie de Jong as that just all-action, magnificent yep. midfielder, or Matthias de Ligt as that dominant centre-back. So I would argue that when Ajax lost de Jong and de Ligt, they became no longer the, the, the Ajax that we got all excited about that one year. And it's like you wanted Messi to say and, to good, and you chose not to. <laughs> adding, adding Messi and Ronaldo doesn't quite fill those midfield holes and those centre-back holes. No, I mean, again, I think let's just put him at center back and see what happens. A messi Ronaldo <laughs> center back pairing. I don't see how it could lose. I think you're, you're pushing ahead to our next question, Taylor. Oh, I am. I didn't even mean to. From Matt Koss, what club soccer team would win a special tournament where all offensive players switch to defense and defense to offense, but midfielders and goalies stay the same? First, I will say, Matt Koss, I love your questions. Yep. This one gave me a headache. Yep. <laughs> Like it's really it's, in, it's, it's really interesting, think. but it had me oh just staring at my screen and trying to come up with ideas. Because essentially, you have to think like you have to think of some strikers who you think could play centre back and like wingers who could play full back, and then you have to think of that same team's defenders going and playing up front, and it has to work both ways. And I really struggled yeah. with getting it to work both ways and before i give my answer can i run through some that didn't quite work you can i would just wanted to say for me this felt like if i was being tasked with digging two holes but i had to like (laughs) backfill one hole with the fill from the other one like every time i was like i've done it i've solved it oh defense right and then i would solve that and then realize that uh that team did not have the attackers i needed yes it was more challenging than i expected i got really excited when i thought about liverpool because I thought, all right, the defenders have to be the attackers, the attackers Uh-oh. have to be defenders. That is my answer. <laughs> I could, oh, really? <laughs> yes. Okay. All right, so you're filled in a front three of Virgil uh-huh. van Dijk, I imagine, as centre forward, 
Andy Robertson as the left winger and Trent right. Alexander-Arnold on the right. Mm-hmm. That is a magnificent forward line made up of defenders. Mm-hmm. But then your back line is Sadio Mane, Mohamed Salah, Roberto Firmino, and maybe Divock Origi. That, that's where it fell down for me. But I'd be willing to, uh, to hear you out at least. Look, compromises have to be made, Daryl. <laughs> um, and I think that, first of all, as you said, like Virgil van Dijk can go be the, the target striker, could probably also do some of the Firmino stuff. And then we know Trent yeah. Alexander-Arnold and Andy Robertson can get involved in the attack and score goals and create chances. So that yeah. works. And Virgil van Dijk isn't just like a big, tall centre-back. He's so graceful and like really good on the ball. I actually mm. think he'd be a magnificent target man who could yeah. bring the ball down and really do things with it and facilitate attacks and combine with Robertson and TAA. That's yeah. a some attack. So then it's the defense. And I think what I kept ending up with is that with many, 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 many teams, there's always going to be that one player similar to Son Hyung Min where you're like, ooh, but you're not going to track back. And that's going to lead to fights on the field just before halftime. So I was looking at Liverpool as being Sadio Mane and Mohamed Salah. We know they will work hard. You have to work hard to be in Jurgen Klopp's system. So mm-hmm. my expectation there was that, yeah, they'll get up and down the field. They'll do, they won't be as defensively solid as Trent Alexander Arnold or Andy Robertson, but I think that they can put in the effort, certainly, and will not balk at that. Yeah, you're right. Center back is an issue, but I think anytime you have a center forward dropping in to be a center back, there's at least the familiarity of what they would do as a striker. So then maybe they can handle that a little bit more. Firmino also has got some height. So too does Divock Origi. So they can handle the set pieces. That's where I was going with Liverpool. All right, I didn't think of the fact that Firmino and Origi actually are quite tall. So that actually does make them a good centre-back pairing. In right? your face, Daryl, from a yeah, minute ago. Okay, I'm more convinced. And I think the, the good argument with Liverpool is they really do defend from the front. Like Firmino really, yeah. we've talked about this at length, right? He understands all the angles of closing down, as do Salah and Mane. And Origi does when he plays as well. So they, you can argue that that back four would have a defensive understanding because they've done so much defending from the front in the Jurgen Klopp system. So... Yeah, the Firmino Origi height thing, I think in my head they were shorter, but they're both about six feet, right? Yeah, so I, I think I think I'm good with that as my center back options. Here's the thing though, Daryl. We talked about this before we started recording, just hinting at this question and how it it was sort of time consuming. And you speculated that we might have the same answer. Knowing that we now do not, I, I do have a guess as to which team you landed upon, but I would love to hear who it is. First let me tell you who it isn't. Okay. I got really excited about Chelsea because I think a great centre-back pairing would be Olivier Giroud and Tammy Abraham. Those guys are winning a lot of headers. Mm -hmm. And then to have Willian as right-back and Christian Pulisic as left-back, I I really like the idea of those guys overlapping. But then the guys up front (laughs) would be Rudiger and Christensen (laughs) And zoom oh, it just—it's just not an exciting forward line, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm pulling at my shirt collar right now. Yeah, so that, they'd be like, maybe they could like, have some very narrow one nil wins, but it would—it <laughs> would be a lot less exciting than watching regular Chelsea, right? <laughs> it's Mourinho's dream team, right there. Yeah. Um, Real Madrid was another one because I thought Sergio Ramos in like that, that Virgil Van Dijk role, Marcelo as a left winger. That I was think the, my number be- one. Could be yeah. really exciting. I couldn't put a good defense together, though. I mean, Aiden Hazard is not playing defense. That's the problem. Even right. Karim Benzema, like, I could see being a decent center back. It's just Aiden Hazard is not playing fullback. We know Jose Mourinho couldn't even get him to, like, track back marginally to the extent he wanted. I doubt he's staying back and being a left back. And Gareth Bale's career nearly went off the rails when he had to play left back for a while. And there's that. Right? Do you yes. remember when Tottenham couldn't win a game because Gareth mm-hmm. Bale was playing left back? Remember when it was, like, a punchline that he never scored goals? Yes. Yeah, that was. He knew- he nearly got sold to Birmingham City when he was playing left back. 
Wow. Um, so here's my winner. I'll let you take a guess before I, uh, before I reveal my winner. Is it a team you've already mentioned today? Yes, we've said the name. Is it Borussia Dortmund? No, it's not, but you're close. It's Bayern Munich. Ah, yeah, no, that makes sense. Yo, gosh, yes, it's Bayern Munich. Of course it's Bayern Munich. <laughs> oh, yeah, they, they play three attackers in their defense already. Yes. Good job, Dale. You answered it. So, yes, the, the centre-backs, which is where I always started. I, this oh is what got God. me especially excited. The centre-backs yeah. on Bayern Munich would be a partnership of Robert Lewandowski and Thomas Muller. I mean, that, that's, that does it right there, because Robert Lewandowski, we've got the height. He can handle the set pieces. Yep. Again, is familiar with what uh, attackers want to do, and we'll uh-huh. be able to marginally negate that. And he's just physically powerful, right? He's going to be winning a lot of balls, which is yeah, not and, always true of strikers. And then we have madman genius that is <laughs> Thomas Muller. Yeah. Thomas who will, Muller interpreting space, right? So you can have I'm a so great, excited. Yeah, he's a great defender. Oh, um, to happen. The fullbacks would be, um, what, maybe Perisic and Gnabry? Those are yeah. some pretty good overlapping fullbacks. Um, but then the strike force would be um, David Alaba, who is a magnificent attacking fullback yeah. in his day, right? But he's now playing centre-back. Um, Alfonso Davies, who basically is a left winger, mm-hmm. so he can easily play left wing or forward. We've seen him play forward for Canada. Um, and who else would I put in there? You could Probably... be Boateng up top, and then you could do uh, Pavar out wide. Pavar, who scored that goal for France, that we know he can score some goals yeah. and hit some bangers. There we go. I th- yeah, I think I'd go Boateng, Alaba, and Alfonso Davis. That's my that's my three. Yeah, that's a good team. That's a good team right there. There we go. Bayern have Munich. you have you heard the uh, the rumors that David Alaba might be leaving? No. So I hadn't heard that until today either. I heard Archie Rinsut talking about it. And I'm now fascinated. If you're a team signing him, are you signing him if he does go, which he very well may not because Bayern will probably retain him and why would you leave them? If he did leave, I wonder if a team would sign him as a center back or if they're signing him to be like an out-and-out left winger, which we know he still can do and would probably be better than a lot of other options out there. You mean left back? Because I remember him being an attacking left back. I think, well, I think maybe, yeah, maybe I'm thinking of Austria. When we saw him play for Austria, he would, it was like, oh, no, he was the fullback, but now he is their yeah. main striker. Oh, man, I've seen him play, I've seen him play center midfield for Austria yep. as well. I mean, I feel like yeah. there are a lot of teams where David Alaba could go and play central midfield, or at least mm-hmm. he could back in the day. Yep. Hmm. So we'll see what happens. But where was, for now, where was he rumored to be joining? Or was I don't know. I, I think it was just sort of that, like, uh, Bayern would probably need to tighten it up a little bit. And if they wanted to reinvest and bring in some new players, they might have to like m- make things work. And it could be David Alaba who would demand a high fee, but could be replaced, basically, hmm. I think was the argument. Well, speaking of investing to make things work, ah, today's show is sponsored by Manscaped. Uh, if you are covered in hair, but you're, you want to go out in the summer and show off your body... <laughs> Manscaped is what you need to invest in. Manscaped will help you trim it all down to make you look good. I'm not saying this is what just happened, but I feel like you thought we had a different advertiser and then you had to pivot to Manscaped over investing. No, that's not what happened at all. All right. I promise. All right. <laughs> well, I appreciate the transition work by you, my friend. I appreciate what Manscaped does, and I appreciate their dedication to quality because they have products to help you with full body grooming from head to toe and in that head, even inside your head when it comes to your earballs. <laughs> Is that what they're called, earballs? Yes. 
100%. (laughs) So Manscaped have just released the Shears 2.0 nail kit, which is the perfect add-on to the Lawnmower 3.0 or the perfect package. I did not know about the Shears. They haven't sent us a nice nice product sample of the Shears 2.0, but apparently it's a luxury four-piece nail kit featuring tempered stainless steel tools and includes slashed tipped tweezers, rounded point scissors, fingernail clippers, and a medium grit nail file. I I need the Shears 2.0. I, I kind of do too, reading that description. Uh, I w- was raised in a barbar- barbaric household that I didn't realize that you had different types of nail clippers. It was Alexis Guerrero. So it was like, what? No, I need nail clippers. And I was like, yeah, nail clippers, are, there's one thing or another. There's not multiple types. And he's like, no, there are definitely two types. Manscaped could have taught me that as well. And now I kind of want the Shears 2.0. Do you think Alexis has a Shears 2.0? If he does, I'm jealous and angry. We might have to start podcast war over it. I think, I think we should go to war over our nails. Um, that's fine. Let's do it. <laughs> For a limited time, subscribers to Manscaped can get two free gifts. The Shed Travel Bag, which is a $39 value, and the patented or patented high-performance reduced chafing Manscaped Boxer Briefs. I do have a pair of those, and I'm very, very happy about them. You can get 20% off plus free shipping with the code TSS20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use the code TSS20. That's right. Thank you very much to Manscaped for sponsoring this episode and providing travel bag, high-performance, reduced chafing, boxer briefs, free shipping, and 20% off with that code. Summer is here. It's time to Manscaped. Lovely. It's time to answer our final listener question of the day, which comes from Elijah Olander. Tottenham really seemed to be on the up, challenging in both England and abroad. What is the key reason they didn't turn out like Liverpool? Oof. I feel like this question comes from a place of pain for Elijah Olander. I would argue that Liverpool were always building towards something and the the system was always more important than the players, right? Which has similarities between Klopp and Pochettino. But the big thing that happened, I think like one of the big turning points is when Klopp had a player that wanted to leave in Felipe Coutinho, they just said, go on then, leave, right? Mm-hmm. We'll take the 100 million whatever that Barcelona... Was, like, was it 130 or so that Barcelona are willing to lot. pay? Um, and we'll just keep building the squad with it on, you know, fresh players coming in who are committed to the way we want to play, right? We'll get like Naby Keita, guys like that. Whereas at Tottenham, I really feel like Pochettino and Daniel Levy were both sort of like, all this revolves around guys like Christian Eriksen, Toby Alderweireld, yeah, Jan Vertonghen. Mm-hmm. And when they wanted to leave, we just throw more money at them and beg them to stay. And I think the effort it takes to play the Pochettino way if it's not fresh guys coming in all the time, if it's just guys that you keep having to twist their arm and persuade them to stay, that eventually it just stops working. Yeah, I agree entirely. And to a point you made, like Liverpool have now won the Champions League, they have won the Premier League, and yet it still feels like they're building. It's st- it does not feel like, okay, but this person is sort of maybe a little bit tired, maybe they replaced that, oh, this person doesn't really want to do that anymore. It still feels like, oh, they're just going to add components and keep going. Whereas Tottenham, 
I think we had reached the end of the cycle, and that was really clear. It's just that they were not making or addressing the concerns to deal with that end yes. of cycle. And so instead, they were sort of trying to build on top of that on the foundations that were sort of already crumbling, or I guess more specifically, were already very tired and uh, sort of ready for replacing or ready for a little bit of a change. And so they just tried to stretch it out and stretch it out and stretch it out, yep. right? And the start of this season is basically when things got stretched too far. Yep. I'd also argued that the stadium didn't help, right? No one's ever actually said this, and no one ever said it at Arsenal either when they opened their new stadium. But I'm pretty confident every time a team opens a very expensive new stadium, it does seem to coincide with a lack of investment in the playing squad. And I think that's really significant. You're right. And I think it also... Like it does, and simultaneously you sort of don't notice that because the big shiny thing has arrived. So it seems like – like with Tottenham, for example, the big shiny stadium arrives and they still have this team. The problem is that they still have this team. They haven't uh, rejuvenated. They haven't brought in the maybe the squad you need. There's an entire year where they don't reinforce, and right there, yeah. that's a problem because when you're playing with the intensity and specifically with the training style of Pochettino and from what everything I heard and read, it sounds like – to get them all on the same page and to get everybody sort of bought into the system, the training is very, very similar. And if you're doing the same thing every day in training and getting the same instructions and then playing the same way, but there's no reinforcements pushing you, eventually it feels like, well, what are we doing this for? Like, no one else can do this. I'm tired and no one is pushing me to that next level or giving me a break so that I can take a game off and then come back fully charged. You sort of run into complacency or just general fatigue. And I think that's a big difference between that and Liverpool, who approach almost every single performance like it might be life and death. Do you think it's possible that Klopp just makes training more fun? Yes, I absolutely do. I mean, I, know, I, I do feel very confident saying that like the Klopp we get who's very affable is not who he is in training, at least not the majority of the time. But yeah, I think that he is at least a more bombastic figure. You can imagine him really, really loudly cheering for a goal or coming out and hugging a player if they've done the right thing. Pochettino, I just I don't get that vibe as much. I get a little bit more introspection, a little bit more quiet thought on what's happening. I'm sure he can raise his voice, don't get me wrong. But <laughs> yeah, I think you kind of need that character, that emotion, that personality, if training is going to be fairly repetitive. I, I don't know if you saw the video. I saw the video of uh, Minamino's first training session. Um, and it's kind of freezing cold because, you know, it's Liverpool. <laughs> and he, <laughs> he went out there and they're all standing in a circle. And I think it was Minamino's birthday, right? Um, so Klopp asked him what the happy birthday song was in uh, Japanese. Mm -hmm. So he sang it. And then he got Mohamed Salah to sing it in Arabic and Firmino to sing it in Brazilian Portuguese. And there was this weird, like, looseness about the squad that they're all quite happy to do this, like, weird thing of singing Happy Birthday in your own language that I just felt like it was slightly kooky, but, like, maybe spoke to how loose and odd some Liverpool training sessions might be. I think that's a really great point, and I think you could almost imagine a hypothetical in the opposite scenario at Tottenham when they're doing that, and it's instead Pochettino being like, everybody sing the song. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I don't care what you sing. Like, just sing. We got to sing it together. And you could definitely look across and see all the Liverpool players, like, singing their own version and being like, that, that seems fun. Can, can we have that? Can we do some of that? Oh, we can? We can't bring anybody to do that? Okay, well... Maybe Josie will fix it. We'll see what happens. <laughs> well, I mean, I might be overinterpreting that, but I think a combination of Klopp making uh, the sessions more fun and the constant refreshing with new talent, new players, uh, new enthusiasm coming in versus 
basically the opposite of those two things that's happening at Spurs are why Liverpool continued to progress whereas Spurs hit a wall and then very much went off the rails is that if that's not mixing too many metaphors if if the situation were reversed (laughs) and Tottenham had won the Champions League though because I think there is probably also an argument that Liverpool actually win a big piece of silverware and that if you were maybe just a little bit like, oh, I don't know if this is all worth it. Like, I'm very tired. I'm very beaten up. Maybe that does sort of remind you like, oh, no, this is definitely working. I'm all the way back in. If the situation goes the other way and, and Spurs win, do you think we see any sort of downturn in performance from Liverpool the way we have from Tottenham? No, I think we'd still see Liverpool just going at it, trying yeah. to win the Premier League in what, you know, what is this current season? Mm-hmm. If anything, Tottenham might have just been satisf- satisfied with finally winning the Champions League or ha- finally winning a trophy under Pochettino. And that might have been enough to be able to say, okay, now we refresh the squad. We did it yeah. with these guys. Now we can maybe start. So the pressure's off, right? The pressure is off to try and win a trophy with this definite, like, uh, it's almost like a national team golden generation that Spurs had and they kind of knew they were running out of time. It's kind of like as that England team got older, right? It was like, we we have to do something with this group before this group falls apart. Right, because that was that was sort of the narrative afterwards, or when like things go south at Tottenham, is that Pochettino felt like that was the chance and didn't really feel that level. Yeah, didn't feel that that level of enthusiasm. I think by all accounts, sort of wanted to win it and then be able to walk away. And you, if say Tottenham had won that, I don't think it would have been Liverpool saying, "Oh, that was our chance." I think they would have been rubbing their hands together, like, "But we're coming back next year, and you all are in trouble." Let's go again, because also they had only just missed out on winning the league by what two points? Yeah, so. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, they would have been. I'm sure Liverpool would have been fine if they hadn't won the Champions League last year. Mm-hmm. It 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 does feel like eons ago that Pochettino was in charge of Tottenham. That yeah, is the right? way the season has gone, and the fact that we would be like talking about preseason and signings and everything if this were. Well, we'd be talking about the Euros, but yeah, uh, I, like I think that's a, that's a symptom of coronavirus. From what certainly. March to mm-hmm. July feels like hundreds of years. It really, really does. <laughs> yeah. So I say that just to say, like, it's worth remembering that it clearly was not working at Tottenham anymore. And there is now, like, I still will get, like, texts from Tottenham friends being like, this is what we gave up on Pochettino for, for Mourinho. And I think it was the right call in the moment with the way things had gone. I sort of put it in my mind, I think that my allotment of blame was, like, 20% players with a lot of that percentage being Christian Eriksen. And then some percentage split around equal for the ownership group and the lack of investment and Pochettino and sort of some of the decisions he made and the way he went about running practices and setting the team up. And maybe one of the things we've, we haven't said outright is essentially there's not a confidence in a long-term progress. Yeah. Like the idea of holding on to this like golden generation of like Ericsson, you know, that, that group of players and saying we have to win something with these guys, um, that betrays a lack of faith that you can sell and reinvest and keep building and building and building, right? There's yeah. a lack of confidence in your own long-term planning. And and with that, like I'm sure Tottenham on, fans are hating hearing this. I'm really sorry, Tottenham fans. But I'm I mean, not sure they are. Things are not like, going I, as well as they should be, right? Because I saw some comments from from Tottenham fans pointing out that like there was for Spurs fans a feeling of he is looking for other teams. Uh, Pochettino is maybe making some batty eyes at Real Madrid, for example, <laughs> and like he came out and said like, ah, oh, well maybe like I've gone back on not wanting to manage them. Like it doesn't seem as though he was like there was the feeling that he is there. And I would say, think about that and then think about Jurgen Klopp. Can you remember a time when it was like Klopp might leave, like Liverpool uncertain about Klopp's future? Like he, it feels like he's going to be there for 30 years. Yeah, I think the only thing that tears him away is the Germany job at this point. 
Yeah. And again, that would be probably out of complacency. Like, all right, I feel like I've done enough. And it may well be that he just likes it and stays there forever. I mean, we say that it could well be that the wheels come off next season, but <laughs> we haven't. I think if you are a player. He runs out of happy birthday songs. Exactly. exactly. But like that, it seems very much the case that Pochettino was okay with winning with Tottenham, winning the Champions League, and then like that being his curtain call. Like you wouldn't have heard that from Jurgen Klopp. And if you're a Liverpool player, knowing that your manager is going to be there and keep fighting and keep leading and wants to evolve and adapt and change versus, oh, he was kind of out on this too, so I'm not the only one. Okay, well then that's good to know. Like I, I think it doesn't certainly doesn't motivate you for the start of next season. It sure doesn't. It does not. All but right. I'm motivated Daryl to continue to do episodes. Which is ironic, given that we're now at the end of this one. We sure are at the end of this one. Um, I think I mentioned earlier that there may be a little less Daryl in the immediate future mm-hmm. because I'll be getting the uh, the radiation treatment. It may be that I'm gone all of next week. We actually don't know. Uh, basically, I'm having the treatment Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I don't know what Tuesday and Thursday are going to look like. I guess we'll we'll find out next week, right? So you yes. either you either hear me or you won't. But if you don't hear me, you'll definitely hear Taylor. Yeah, and even if you are able to record, I might just talk more and not let you speak at all. So just like normal. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) And if you want to hear more voices saying smarter things about Major League Soccer, I would encourage you to go and subscribe to MLS Assist with Joe and Jordan. Again, they'll be reviewing all the action every day from the MLS's back tournament for as long as the MLS's back tournament lasts. well said again my friend well said again yeah go subscribe give it a listen they're going to talk about lots of games they're going to talk about lots of goals it's going to be wonderful taylor rockwell thank you for taking the time to talk to me today ready get you buddy listeners thank you for listening and the total soccer show will be back again very soon 